Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. In the last season, I stumbled upon an article featuring this guy. Grateful Dead, could you come up with a better name? The Grateful Dead cases? It was about a series of mysterious unsolved deaths and disappearances of Grateful Dead fans. Those concerts brought people together to a certain place and certain time. The idea wasn't that all these cases were related, but perhaps their commonality could be used to help solve them. Maybe they were going to a concert, had a ticket stub in their pocket, had a concert shirt on. This, in turn, sent me down an investigative rabbit hole, eventually linking with this guy. There was this podcast that was being put together and that it was about the Grateful Dead, murder mystery type thing. When I saw that, it wasn't too long before this all started bubbling up in my mind. A strange encounter he had decades ago may hold the truth to the brutal murder of Mary Joya and Greg Niffen. We're sitting in the living room and another fellow deadhead showed up and immediately confronted Bo. He said, how can you sleep at night? Why were you washing your hands? An African-American man named Ralph International Thomas was convicted of the murders, but with very little physical evidence. And according to a large circle of friends, all deadheads, the real murderer may have been James Bowen, or Bo. And this is the crew that was on the bus, and you can hardly, hardly see, but there's Greg, there's Randy, and then this is the bus that ended up in Bus Village at the marina, and this is Bo. And as he's telling me that, he looks up and he goes, there's the guy that they said did it. As I look up to see who he's talking about, the guy disappears behind the building. I'm tracking, waiting for him to come out, and thinking, it's going to be Bo. I know it's going to be Bo. And doom. There's both. I met with Ralph International's appeal attorney. Racial bias was in this case the entire way, the whole way. The wrong person of the wrong color has the wrong history. The private investigator who initially tracked down Bo. I would have never dreamt that I would be sitting here talking to you guys about this 25 years later. It just blows my mind. Entering a complex web of weird and sometimes suspicious characters. The one that uh, International offed. Yeah, I remember that. In the end, I was able to track down Bo myself, living in the middle of nowhere, Oregon. And our interaction was not pleasant, to say the least. Were you ever in Rainbow Village in 85? Get the fuck off my property. Were you? Get the fuck off my property. You know what that fucking means? 
I'm not going to lie. I was scared for my life that day. But hey, we live to tell the tale. My co-producer, Mike Rooney, was in the car running audio. And he was also the getaway driver. That's fucking him, dude. He's fucking crazy as fucking hell, dude. I thought he was going to swing at you with that thing. The shovel. I did too. I thought he was going to get a gun. Oh my god, dude. Well, you got him. Fuck. I don't know. Let's just pull over for a second. The initial premise of this podcast was to cover multiple cases. A deep dive into Todd Matthews' list. Bizarre unsolved murders and disappearances of Grateful Dead fans. And since that day we encountered James Bowen in small town Oregon, my co-producer Mike Rooney has continued this investigation. And what he's been able to uncover is beyond worthy of a second season of this podcast. Welcome to Dead and Gone Season 2. Here's Todd Matthews, the guy who created the list of missing and murdered Grateful Dead fans. If I lit your fuse, I want you to let it burn and go as far as you can with it. I think you've got a unique platform that gives you an opportunity to pursue it in this way. Your musical interest is is definitely, you've got the listeners. The listeners that you have, I think, are the people that's going to help solve these cases. So I absolutely want to get you to continue on with it in a way that might not be in my bailiwick. It certainly is yours. You made my theory law. You really did. You really proved it. You know, and that's the hope. When you put together a theory, you always hope that somebody makes a law out of it. That's something that I hoped would eventually happen. I thought it would happen a little differently. I thought maybe some of the actual people would see it themselves. But you guys showed me that uh, it had to be worked. And that's exactly what you did. So I'm glad you did it. It was gratifying to know that uh, that early theory made sense enough to somebody to actually pursue it. Back in the day, you know, I wanted to just take on the world and do everything myself. Now I feel like it's better to inspire people. Just when I think nobody's listening, you guys take off on something like this, so it's amazing. I had the platform and the power to put something out there that somebody used. That's what it's all about. If you have a platform and you don't use it for good, you're wasting it. You know, I want to continue forward telling these stories and inspiring people like you. I think you guys pursued it and, and made it happen. So I, it was amazing to see it play out and just, just like a fantasy come to life, really. Here's Jerry Garcia, lead singer and guitarist of the Grateful Dead. Deadheads, uh, they come in all shapes and sizes and forms, and they're, they're everything from street people to uh, solid professionals. They've permeated society, you know. I mean, there's a lot of mainstream deadheads. Even the New York City Police Department's got a lot of deadheads, and they're all over the place. There is this little culture uh, that, of people who identify themselves by what something that they like and something that's a, a good thing in their lives. I, guess, I mean, I, I, deadheads are not, they don't fit into a category real easy. 
and at least one U.S. president was a deadhead. I was really pleased to see the Grateful Dead have one more great run around the country, you know, in the last couple of years and see all these young teenagers, you know, gravitating to a group that uh, all of us liked uh, 20 or more years ago. A contemporary music critic has suggested that the four greatest musicians who ever lived in alphabetical order are Bach, Beethoven, The Grateful Dead, and Mozart. You've had a top ten single. Are the Grateful Dead mainstream in 1989? Uh, I don't know whether we're mainstream or not, but we've certainly become a kind of a cultural artifact of some kind. You know, I mean, it's hard to tell whether or not our music is accessible to America, but we'll see. I mean, if this next record does really well, then it's uh, it's yeah, then then we're some somewhere. If we're not in the mainstream, we're pretty close to it. You know. This is Dean Budnick the host of the podcast Long May They Run, and the editor-in-chief of Relics, a music magazine that focuses on live and improvisational music. The Grateful Dead scene exploded in 1987. That's when they released In the Dark, which had their lone top 10 hit, right, with Touch of Grey. There was an MTV special, Day of the Dead. What the special conveyed is that there was a scene out in the lots, and all of a sudden people who had no interest in going to see the Grateful Dead to revel in the music of the band just knew there was a party going on. They call themselves deadheads, but really, they're quite a lively bunch. <laughs> it's a friendliness that, that exists and, and the amount of energy that gets put out in there. It's the same thing that takes people to football games or any kind of gathering where people are going for the same purpose to enjoy something. The audience shares with the dead. It's a, it's a unique experience with all of us, so everybody's just that much more high energy. Aside from the people who wanted to go to experience that, there were a lot of people who also understood that there were customers there. Some people would call them the tie-dye mafia. Some people would call them the nitrous mafia. To be clear, they weren't in the uh, in organized crime, but they were not the old school deadhead making it from show to show. The big draw to a Grateful Dead concert is not only the music, but the environment. A chance for many of these people to live the lifestyles of the 60s. And that means experiencing hippies, love, and LSD. I never see mushrooms around here except when the Grateful Dead's here. Same with LSD, it's very rare that we see LSD except when the Grateful Dead comes to town. And that's when things really started to escalate. As Shakedown Street grew, as people increasingly began attending the shows who had no intention of going in, just wanted to be there for the party, the Grateful Dead started cracking down. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. 
June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist June Parker on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. For a, a rock and roll group, for a performing musical group, the end of that really is the colossal, the, what we call the mega gig, you know. We played in those, and uh, that's where we ended up in terms of the largeness of our audience, the greatness of demand for uh, what we were doing and so forth and so on. We felt that that was a dead end and that there was no place to go from there and that at that point the experience for us got to be one that was totally controlled in the sense of it's airplanes to motel, motel to gig, yeah. backstage, heavy security, nobody near the stage, you know, and, yeah. and, and what's worse is that it's also reflected in the way that those very large venues deal with people. They deal with them in a, that sort of cattle prod methodology. You know, lots of cops, sure. lots of frisk lines, lots of tightness, you know. And uh, we felt that what we were doing and what we wanted to do was definitely not that. You know, yeah. that was clearly not it. I remember talking to, to Dennis McNally about this once, and he asked the band if they would write a letter to everyone saying, listen, please, police yourselves. Please don't show up for a show without a ticket. And the band really didn't want to do that. They didn't want to feel like they were the authority figures dictating policy. From there, it's a question of what we would like to do is improve the quality of the experience, both on the level of what we're doing amongst ourselves and how we interact with the audience and what the audience experiences when we're there. In that sense, we're, we're the Don Quixotes of rock and roll. You know, we're... we're uh, you know, we're doing something nobody else cares to do, mm -hmm. which is trying to figure out how to make the experience, what, which we value and which our audience values, something that's more in line with what it, what it feels like, which is a positive sort of outpouring of good energy. I started seeing The Grateful Dead in the middle of the 1980s. And the scene that I entered and the scene that I'd read about before I came in was often disparaged as a bunch of neo-hippies who are trying to chase after something that disappeared 20 years ago. The band has already passed its peak. The Grateful Dead had nothing to offer creatively anymore, and that their fans were simply chasing them around, looking for something that had dissipated long ago. All they could do is go on stage and noodle. Over time, people talk about, you know, the Great American Songbook and how the Grateful Dead's music is a part of that. Look back at any newspaper story 
from the 1980s into the 1990s and see how dismissive everyone is. They were widely disparaged for what they were doing. Some local reporter would go out in the lot and try to find them the gnarliest of Wookiees and start asking him questions about, why are you here? What are you doing? What's the point of this? So, you guys are obviously here for the show. You've been here uh, since Wednesday? No, 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 no. We're here for the football game. <laughs> go Falcons, go! <laughs> Giants. <laughs> Giants, go Giants, go! Yeah. We're all gonna get tickets before We're the end of the night. Guaranteed, guaranteed. They picked this Wookiee who wouldn't give his name, but, but he would identify himself as Jack Straw after the Grateful Dead song. And so you'd see all these newspaper reports with quotes from Jack Straw because the reporter doesn't understand what's going on. And there's a little subtle gamesmanship at play by the person who's being interviewed who understands exactly what's taking place here. And you enjoyed the show? It was a good show? Took him yeah. wrong joining Manhattan. <laughs> Newfoundland side. Do you think, uh, like, does it upset your plans at all? You guys are just like, you know, it's cool, we can live out of our truck for a couple days? Or? 80 bucks a motel room. I know, we room paid 80, 80, 80 you know? bucks for that room. Oh, you guys had a room last night? Yeah. 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 Okay. 22. It's quite the experience. It never ends, it never will. So you have to see him at least one. Everybody. Definitely gonna see him at least once. In my home state, of Rhode Island, the Grateful Dead last played here in 1987. And when they played here in 1987, downtown Providence was overrun. There were so many people who were camping there, sleeping there, hanging out there over the course of that three night run that the Grateful Dead were banned and they never returned after 1987. Between 1987 and 1995, no more Grateful Dead. And the way ultimately the band had to circumvent this is they would start doing stealth shows. For instance, the Grateful Dead was banned in Hartford. And then they came back in 1990 by very quietly putting tickets on sale, not as the Grateful Dead, but as formerly the Warlocks, which was their original name in 1965 before they changed it toward the end of the year and they became Grateful Dead. So they put these tickets on sale as formerly the Warlocks, those tickets weren't sold through mail order. People were came down, they, they were excited. What, what, do you, what brings you here? Why, why do you like the Grateful Dead so much? Yes, the people. people. Yeah. What do you think, yeah, what do you think's gonna happen? You think after uh, the uh, fall tour, maybe things are gonna mellow out and maybe we'll uh, get things uh, going back normal in the uh, spring? Or? I think they're gonna be really mean. <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna crack down even harder. <laughs> there was a lot of energy, and that was a week before the shows at the Meadowlands. Sunday, Brendan Burn Arena, Meadowlands Sports Complex. We're here for the fourth in a series of five Grateful Dead concerts. They busted out some songs they hadn't played for a while, including this combination of Help on the Way, Into Slipknot, Into Franklin's Tower, which originally, as it was recorded on Blues for Allah, those three would flow into one another. The way they closed out the first set on the Saturday show at the Meadowlands was with Help Slip Franklin's, and it was a really profound moment for a lot of people. But I do remember sitting there. Something just felt wrong. In spite of all the excitement, something felt awry. And it wasn't until I read about what had happened a couple days later. 
Something was off. Something strange was in the air at the Meadowlands on the day of the Grateful Dead's performance on October 11th, 1989. Dean Budnick was onto something, as were the Deadheads who had written in letters to the editor in the most recent issue of Dupree's Diamond News, the Grateful Dead fanzine that was circulating throughout the concert venue on that day. A venue that would host a five-night run of shows for the dead in New Jersey that would be followed by multi-night stadium stays in Philadelphia, Charlotte, Miami, Los Angeles, and Oakland. The Grateful Dead, a band that began nearly a quarter century ago somewhat modestly as a weird little Americana group of post-beat outcasts bouncing throughout the Northern California counterculture of the late 60s, whose only ambition seemed to be to follow the music wherever it took them via whatever types of experimental and reality-leveling substances were put in front of them, were now, on the eve of their fourth decade as a band, the third biggest concert draw in rock and roll. The Rolling Stones and The Who held on to the top two spots, but that was only because The Grateful Dead let them. The Dead, in a nod to their ever-supportive and ever-growing fan base, made sure their tickets were cheap. $22.50 a pop. The Stones, on the other hand, charged $35 a ticket that year. The Grateful Dead knew where their bread was buttered. It wasn't with the critics. It wasn't with Jan Wenner or on the cover of Rolling Stone. It wasn't with the Grammy committee, and it wasn't with their peers. It was with their fans. The Grateful Dead fan was, just like the band, wholly unique. As we've noted numerous times in this podcast series, the Grateful Dead fan was unlike any other in rock and roll. Their dedication, if you'll pardon a half-ass pun, was absolute. They crisscrossed the country for weeks, sometimes months at a time, in pursuit of the band, created a decentralized economy in support of the subculture they'd built by happenstance, and devoted themselves fully to the band's ethos of freedom, togetherness, and peace through improvisational music and experimental drugs. If the ignorant newscaster sent to grab sound from a dead show parking lot, or for that matter, if the mainstream American John Q. public really wanted to understand what a deadhead was truly all about, they needn't look any further than the pages of the 13th edition of Dupree's Diamond News being passed around the Grateful Dead show at the Meadowlands on October 11, 1989. The fanzine statement of purpose on page one reads in part, quote, This newsletter is published five times a year. Its purpose is to offer a forum for progressive exchange within the Grateful Dead and related communities and to present information and ideas that might not normally cross your path. Some is written by us, and some is submitted by contributors." Unquote. Some of those ideas submitted were not of the progressive and communal variety. Deadheads were lamenting and warning of the ever-present danger at the shows of one of the world's top drawing bands, whose growth and popularity seemed in no way to be slowing down. After the massive success of the band's 1987 single, Touch of Grey, the band attracted a new group of curiosity seekers who didn't quite get the whole deal. Real deadheads disparagingly referred to these newbies as touchheads, and among those touchheads was a bad element. Predatory drug dealers, drunks, frat boys, all manner of fringe riffraff out for a good time when the Grateful Dead Circus came to town and authorities were, in most cities, unprepared to secure the concert venues. As a result, violent behavior and destruction became a near constant hassle for the band and for the true deadheads who were attending shows for the right reasons, not to mention being a hassle to the locals who lived in the cities where the dead performed. 
One such fan expressed his feelings thusly in his Dupree's Diamond News letter to the editor. Quote, Dear DDN, I just returned from the Pittsburgh PA show. As everyone knows by now, the scene turned ugly, and a lot of innocent people got hurt. The police were, without question, out of line. There were circumstances that led up to the violence that were the sole responsibility of a small yet destructive group of people. This quote-unquote wise group decided that the way to see the show was to tear a set of doors off the civic arena. Gate crashing, combined with illegal camping, disrespectful parking, and leaving a mountain of trash have led to the banning of the dead in yet another city. I've been into the dead for over 10 years. The last few years I've been watching the scene I love being destroyed. I write in hopes of reaching out and helping my fellow deadheads realize the fate of the touring Grateful Dead rests in the hands of the people who go to the shows. Unquote. The letter is signed, gratefully, Fred M. Goodrich. Another letter goes on to explain a frightful near trampling by 20,000 people at Foxborough Stadium in Massachusetts. Security, quote-unquote, throttling a deadhead at another stadium, and security and police contingents at various shows that summer who were, quote, anxious to wage a war, unquote. Deadheads were sounding off about the violence that was threatening their favorite pastime. Watching their favorite band, The Grateful Dead, perform to thousands of people in the freest environment possible with minimal hassle. Except the hassle was real because the tension was real. On the one side, you have opportunistic partiers and young people out for a good time and seemingly totally unconcerned with whatever damage is left in their wake en masse, combined with opportunistic drug dealers out to pull down as much cash as they could on the backs of the Grateful Dead. On the other side, you have local police and rent-a-cop security teams hired by the venues to keep the partiers and drug dealers in check who were clearly overmatched. And in the middle, you have locals who are just trying to go about their daily business, but whose communities are being partially destroyed whenever the dead passes through town. And of course, also in the middle, you have the deadhead, the true Grateful Dead fan. The fan in the front row, resting between sets, ignoring the noise, preserving energy for the second set focused on the band, on the music, on the point, ignoring that gnawing feeling in his gut that something was off, something was wrong, something violent from the pages of Dupree's Diamond News was about to happen in real time, in his presence, right here in this broke down palace out in the swamps of New Jersey. Something, somewhere, somewhere close, something dire, something was about to go terribly wrong. There were five days of Grateful Dead concerts here at Brendan Byrne Arena last week. Thousands of their loyal fans enjoyed them. And although the Dead's music is out of the 60s, the time of so-called peace and love, police report several arrests, among them 15 for drug violations and the murder of a lifetime Grateful Dead admirer, Adam Katz. He'd walked out at the end of that set sometime during Franklin's Tower his body was likely dumped outside the venue. Mr. Katz was discovered unconscious by a, a passer a passerby at a, approximately at 9.30 p.m. on the side of Route 20. Blunt instruments struck him on the back of his head. One single blow, the medical examiner says, was the cause of death. He was definitely hit over the top of the head with something. Someone found him there. He never recovered. He passed away. 
According to a New York Times article dated October 25th, 1989, no witnesses have been found. John Hall, the Bergen County prosecutor, said 19,000 fans filled Brendan Byrne Arena with an additional four to 5,000 listening outside the venue. The only lead we could find was that police were searching for an EMT working the show that night, wearing silver metal rim glasses and a long sleeved jean jacket. Apparently, this man witnessed an assault outside the arena the same time Adam was killed. Police say Adam checks out as a good boy, a popular young man, no prior arrests, and from a fine family, grieving today over their loss. Once the news went public, several attendees of the concert that night said they had seen, quote, excessive force used by the security guards throughout the show. Three deadheads from Kingston, New York, said they had seen a person beaten and taken away in a van by security personnel. He loves his music, loved the Grateful Dead and loved music. That was what he wanted to do with his life. He wanted to be a record producer, or I guess a rock star. Adam Katz's parents, Jay and Linda Katz, offered a $35,000 reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction of the person responsible for their son's death. Linda last spoke to her son at 5 p.m. on October 14th, when he called to say that he and three college friends were on the way to the concert, and they would stop by the house afterward. At 1 p.m. on Sunday, October 15, 1989, Adam Katz was pronounced dead. So it wasn't until after 3 in the morning that doctor at Hackensack Hospital called us and said there's an unidentified male here. There were no traces of drugs or alcohol in his system. He was murdered by way of blunt force trauma to the head. And to this day, his case remains unsolved. When we got to the hospital, it was hard to recognize him. The first thing I did was I took his hand and I said, Adam, mommy and daddy are here, it's gonna be okay. And he squeezed my hand very hard. That was the last reaction he had. They told me it was a reflex, but I guess I would kind of like to believe that he waited for us. This is Billy Jensen, true crime investigative journalist and producer focusing on unsolved crimes. It's just a matter of knowing where to go. Now, when we come to a community, obviously what we're looking for here is we're looking for people who might know people. Time often opens up the truth. And with a community like the Deadhead community, someone's going to say something at some point. You have to hope. There's no better community than the Grateful Dead in order to do that. Even before the internet, the Grateful Dead had a community that was interacting with each other from different parts of the country with tape sharing and with touring and with knowing where the people that would be able to give you shelter when you're at this venue or that venue or anything like that. So it was very much a network in you know the 70s and 80s and 90s, even before the internet was around and people were using social media. So the whole community is something that is very much tied in together and they have been for years. I actually was trying to think about a, a community of people that were better equipped for something like this. And it's, it's pretty hard to think of a community of people that were this connected before the internet. They had, they had newsletters, they had zines, they functioned for three things. One was the general overall community, the second was tape sharing, and the third was just what to look out for or whether somebody needed a ticket or whether the police were gonna crack down on stuff at each venue. So they were very much plugged into 
helping each other and and communication whatever way they could, either passing stuff around at the actual venues or through newsletters or zines. The Katz family, they wanted to do whatever they could to try to solve the case. And so they had Grateful Dead, you know, the mail order service, send out letters to everyone, an appeal from the family of Adam Katz. Dear Deadhead, we are asking for your help on behalf of Jay Katz, the father of Adam Katz. Please read the information below and take a good look at the photos. When you are done, please pass this on to someone else who may have been at this concert. Thank you. On Saturday, October 14th, 1989, between 9 and 10 p.m., Adam Katz, a fan at the Grateful Dead concert that night, was found dead on the northbound lane of Route 120, outside of the Meadowlands Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey. We need your help. There's a hotline listed. There's a reward of $40,000. I think they thought that someone saw something. And it's hard for, again, remember, pre-internet, hard for internet for information to get out there. So this is another mechanism to sort of utilize that Grateful Dead network, go to everyone. Specifically, you can target 50% of the people who are at the show because you know that they received mail order tickets and maybe they did see something and maybe they didn't think twice about it. And maybe they thought, well, you know what? There's always that tension between security and deadheads because honestly, there was a lot of tension between security and deadheads at the time. There is a Facebook group an Adam Katz Facebook group that was established at one point. There is somebody on there in one of the comments who says that he saw something that night. But so there's at least one person who definitely was there. Most of the people who comment on it were there at that show. But uh, at least one person says he saw something. Whether or not it was Adam Katz or just someone else who was unfortunate and had a physical altercation with security, I think is unclear. It's a public Facebook page called Adam Katz Help Solve His Murder. In the description it says, this page seeks any and all information, photos and leads to help find and hold accountable those responsible for the murder of Adam Katz. With nearly 25,000 people at the dead show that night, surely someone saw something. I called our producer, Mike Rooney. I mean, if there's a Facebook group strictly dedicated to Adam Katz, surely someone may have either seen something in there or at least they were there potentially at the concert that night. I'm pulling up the Facebook group right now. It looks like most of these people commenting here were actually at that show. We should definitely just message a few people and see what happens. Most of the comments on that page were sending condolences. Rest in peace, Adam. But a lot of them hinted at the same thing. They claimed to have witnessed suspicious behavior by the security guards at the concert that night. So I messaged every one of them and called the first one to get back to me. People were just happy, happy to be alive. And you know, you'd be at work all day, you're dealing with assholes, and then you're like, I'm gonna go to this concert tonight, and it'll be completely, it'll be a completely different atmosphere and lifestyle than something you just left, you know, from corporate America. And you just go there and these people would actually hug you. You don't even know these people. Then I changed quickly. For some reason there was something in the air that night. 
you saw large groups of those guys in yellow jackets in every spot, in every parking lot. I thought the guards got too, too violent with somebody, went overboard, and the kid died. And they just dumped the body to cover their ass. Typical New Jersey way to do, to do things, you know, just dump the body in the road and take off. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and Jake Brennan. Check out Jake's other music and true crime show, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis, and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and Jake Brennan. The show is produced by myself, Mike Rooney, Alex Vespasted, and Eric Quintana. Mixed by Cooper Skinner. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. With additional music services by Ryan Spraker. Additional mixing by Matt Bowden. Additional writing by Zeth Lundy. Copy edited by Pat Healy. Research and reporting by Eric Tricky. Cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Orrin Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from the Nord Group, Chris Cochran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. And as always, thank you for your support.